So humanity is a beautiful creation from God, right? Like, just think about humanity. Like, God and all of his craftsmanship and the way how glorious he is, he gave a piece of that to humanity. Just think about some of the things that we've created as humans. The pyramids, thousands of years ago, created these vast structures in Egypt, and now today we have no idea how they've done it. Maybe it was aliens that helped them. (laughs) Or think about something as simple as telephones. I have no idea what Alexander Graham Bell was thinking when he said, I would love to talk to somebody who's not in this room. (laughs) And then fast forward, thousands of years later, we have cell phones in the palm of our hand where we have GPS navigation, books, the internet, and everything you can think of. Or think about medical advances. We can literally take someone who has a dying heart, take that heart out, take a donor's heart, put it in their bodies, and that person lives a relatively normal life. This is how humanity has advanced. But despite that, we've also had times in humanity where it's literally as if our minds left our body. Now, you know what kind of times we're talking about. When you're at home, you're running late to this meeting, or somebody you got to meet up with, you're like, where's my phone? I have no idea what my phone is. Babe, have you seen my phone? Were the kids playing with it? Where is it at? And you're looking, you're searching everywhere, but you can't find it. And you think, maybe it's under the couch. So you go and look under the couch, and you take your flashlight, and you look under there, and then it hits you. The flashlight you're using is actually the one on your phone. I promise you I've done that. (laughs) This is the reality. So why do I bring this up? Because this picture is very similar to Israel in our text of Scripture today. Israel and all the glory that God has created them, all the ways he's delivered them from their enemies with signs and wonders, Israel, like us, can be seen throughout the Old Testament searching for God all the while he's right before their eyes. Israel has a problem like all of us. It's a human problem. It's something we all struggle with. Therefore, Isaiah 50, our chapter that we're going to read today, talks about this problem that we all share. In order to look at this problem, we're going to give a solution in three simple points. We'll look at three simple points. First, we'll see we must know our condition. Second, we'll see we must know his commitment. And then third, and finally, we must know the call. With that, let's dig in. Let's look at verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why when I came was there no man? Why when I called was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth the covering. So before God shows Israel the condition that they're in, he first asks these two rhetorical questions. In verse one, we'll see the question, but then in two and three later, we'll come back to God's answer. So first, to understand Israel's condition that Isaiah lays out, we must have a full picture of the history of Israel. Remember, Israel was God's chosen people. Out of all the people of the nations, God chose Israel to be the one that he chose. We can trace back the people of Israel back to the patriarch Abraham. Abraham, God meets Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to bless your lineage with prosperity, safety, and a growing lineage. This is the promise that God made to Abraham. And this promise or agreement that God made to Abraham is what the scripture calls a covenant. The best picture we have of a covenant in our day and age is actually one that's made between a man and a woman. What covenant am I talking about? I'm talking about marriage. It's a relationship bound by an oath that two people make before God 
when they say, I do. Take my wife and I, for example. We'll have the pleasure in July of being married eight years, which is a blessing. Now, this relationship that we have, it's held together by relational commitments that we are bound by. So what's one of those commitments? Well, first, unconditional love. Now, here's why this matters in my marriage. Anybody that's known me since I've been a kid, I've always had the superpower of getting under anyone's skin when I want to. (laughs) And my wife knows this better than anyone. She'll be minding her own business, loving our family well, sitting there reading something or handling with the kids, and I would definitely sneak behind her and scare her for no reason. Or just last the other day, my wife was trying to care for our family. My daughter was sick, and she said, you know, babe, I'm going to get something that's going to really help her. It's going to clear up her passages. And she brought up essential oils again. <laughs> so I troll her. I'm like, babe, that's like a zodiac sign. It's not real. Um, but this is what she has to deal with. And my wife, in her love and grace, has unconditional love for me. But marriage is one commitment, is unconditional love. But what's another commitment to marriage? It's marital faithfulness. I'm hers and she's mine and no one else can come into our marriage. This is why it's so crazy that if someone's flirt with someone else's wife or husband, no one stands for that. Go to a village that know nothing about our culture and if you try to talk to their spouse or their, their husband or wife, it'll cause havoc. Why? Marital faithfulness, it's real. Whereas Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, the wife doesn't have authority over her body, the husband does. The husband doesn't have authority over his body, the wife does. Marital faithfulness. And this is the type of relationship that God had with Israel. He made a covenant with Israel that was meant to be sustained with love and faithfulness. And guess what? God was faithful. God loved Israel over and over and over again. He delivered Israel from their enemies over and over again. Everything that God said he would do because of his love and faithfulness, he kept his word. But did Israel keep their end of the covenant? The answer is clearly no. It says in our text today, Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, for your transgressions your mother was sent away. The book of Isaiah, as we've seen in our study so far, shows that Israel failed to keep their end of the covenant. Instead of them loving God with all their mind, body, heart, and soul, and instead of being faithful to him, so many times Israel rebels. And the Bible calls them an adulterous people. So how bad was it, you may ask? Let me give you some examples of the condition of Israel's unfaithfulness. First, all of Israel was affected. In the beginning of verse 2, God said that there was not one faithful person among them who could answer the call. The problem of Israel wasn't a problem of a few bad apples. That's not the case. All of Israel was affected. The condition in his people was pervasive. Now, why is that? Because sin affects everyone. Everyone in Israel was affected by this condition of sin. Even Isaiah, the prophet that gives us the prophecy that we're reading from today, was also flawed. He says in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, and yet my eyes have seen God. Why does Isaiah say that? Because he knows his condition himself. He also fails to live in light of the covenant requirements. Why is this the case in Israel? Well, it goes back to Adam and Eve. Story of Adam and Eve, we know it. We tell it to children all the time. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve bit an apple, which it never says apple, it says fruit. But they bit the fruit, 
And that's how sin came into the world. That's not the way that Adam and Eve is taught in the scripture. It's not this little cute children's story. Adam and Eve's story is a horror movie. And if you think I'm being somehow overreactive to it, look at the next chapter, the sequel. Chapter four, Adam's son kills their other son. What happens in the garden is something literally changes the entire world because sin creeps in when they disobey God and it affects everyone, not just Israel, but all humanity. Sin has affected us all. But not only that, second, Israel's condition also distorted the mission of God. Turn with me actually to Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at Romans chapter 2, verse 19. The apostle Paul, being an Israelite himself, describes the condition of Israel. Verse 19, Paul says, If you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, because of you. Remember, Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. Nations that didn't know who Yahweh was were supposed to look at Israel, see the way that they loved each other, the way they loved their God, and say, man, I want to be a part of this. I don't know who this Yahweh is, but I'm ready to leave my idols over here because the way you're living, the way you love, and the way you worship, the way you do these things, I want to know that God. That's what they were supposed to be. But instead, it was the opposite. The other surrounding nations, they seen Israel's conduct. They're like, man, they just as bad as us. They're over here worshiping our idols. They're no better than us. I want nothing to do with Yahweh because these people, sometimes they're even worse. They're doing all these crazy things. Why would I want to believe in this Yahweh that you're talking about? Therefore, they blaspheme the name of Yahweh before them. Beloved, I hope this hits home for you as a Christian. Remember, this isn't a Israel problem. This is a human problem. How many people have said they want nothing to do with Jesus, not because of him, but because of the way a Christian has reflected who Jesus is? So I've been on TikTok for the last six months. Some of y'all don't know what that is, but the people who laugh probably do. They're like, man, it's that Gen Z app where those kids get on there and make viral dance videos. Yes and no. It's a little different than that. So there's also a piece of TikTok called Christian TikTok. If you know Christian TikTok, it's a hashtag on there. And basically, you get a lot of Christian content to flood your timeline. And I've been on there. I've debated Muslims and atheists and been able to encourage Christians in their faith. And it's been a great time. But here's something that stood out to me on TikTok. To the people that I've talked to that's walked away from Jesus, people that's a part of the deconstruction movement, a lot of times, most of the people don't have an argument against Jesus and his validity but what they say of the reason that they left Christianity is because, man, my parents were Christians. And they faked the funk on Sunday, but I seen the way that they lived throughout the rest of the week. Or my pastor that I said I believed in, he prayed on people in our church. This dude wasn't godly. I seen the way he lived. These so-called Christians who call themselves Christians, they were worse than the world. So why do I need Jesus? Beloved, let it never be of your life that someone looks at you and say, I want nothing to do with the God you represent. Now, 
lest you hear me somehow saying that you need to be perfect, that's not what I'm saying. I got three kids under the age of four, and within four years, I promise you, they know daddy stinks at times. <laughs> but when you fail and when you have your shortcomings, do you display gospel repentance? Or do you act prideful and say, well, that's not the case, I'm not that. Even when we fail, we can show that, hey, this gospel I believe in, the reason I believe is because I need it and I'm trusting in him. This is what we're called to believe and do as Christians. The condition of Israel that Isaiah is writing about is a condition that we as Christians can relate. A sinful, stiff-necked people sometimes think they're better than they actually are. But, but, in all this, God's rhetorical question stands. Did I divorce you? Or am I not powerful enough to buy you out of the bondage that your sin put you in? God answers his own question. Look at the text. He says, if my, is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. So how does God respond? God flexes. Oh, he flexes. Do you remember who you're talking to? God says, if I can deliver you out of the hands of the Egyptians by literally changing the natural course of nature, what makes you think I can't deal with your sin? This is how God responds to his people. If it was up to them, they would be in an impossible mess. But God's like, I know your condition, but a better question is, do you know who I am? This is what God does. He sees their condition, but he asks them, do you know my commitment? Which brings us to our second point, God's commitment. Second, know his commitment. So we hear about the condition of Israel because of their sin. But the greater reality is God's commitment to his people despite their failures. And how will Israel see God's commitment played out? Well, verses 4 through 9 reintroduces the servant that Mark mentioned last week. This servant, because we have the New Testament, we know that it's none other than Jesus the Messiah. And it's through Christ that we see God's commitment to redeem Israel. But here's the way that God does this. His holy servant is meant to be in complete contrast to the rest of Israel. In other words, you're supposed to look at the servant in verses 4 through 9 and compare it to Israel in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, let's look at some of the ways the servant is different than the rest of Israel. First, the servant lives and breathes the word of God. Look at verse 4. Says the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The servant is the word of God, but he also speaks the word of God. Jesus in his humanity showed that a true follower of God must have a deep relationship with the word. This is why Jesus' words still have so much power 2,000 years later. Think about the atheist and the agnostic. They're like, yeah, I don't believe that Jesus is God and that he did all the signs and miracles, but he was a phenomenal teacher. He was a great teacher. Man, his words, man, they're, they're so powerful. I just don't believe him to be God. Why do they say that? Because even though they deny, they know the word is powerful. We see in Jesus' life. Whenever Jesus was confronted with a hard situation, what did he do? He relied on the word. When he was tempted by Satan, he quoted scripture. 
When Jesus had hard situations like in the Garden of Gethsemane, he reminded his own heart of the truth of God's word. When he encountered difficult people, what did Jesus do? He relied on the word of God. So as Christians, in a world that's plagued with grief and pain, where do you think we should turn? The word of God. Now, I've shared this before in preaching, but one of the things that I feel may be a thorn in the flesh that I struggle with until I see God is anxiety. And in my anxiety, anxiety will have you literally believe in a whole different world in your head that's not even real. You'll just take all these thoughts of what could be, what may be, and you start to live in this false reality when in actuality, it's not even true. So in my anxiety, my flesh naturally is like, okay, Jeff, you're feeling anxious again. Turn on Netflix. Find you a good show. Binge watch it. That'll take your mind off your mind. And then I try it, but it don't work. I'm like, okay, maybe if I call my buddies, hit up some of my homies, and let's go play basketball, have some fun, go do something fun that can take my mind off my anxiety. But it doesn't work. And after I've tried these futile things so many times, I remind myself, man, I need God's word in this moment. What do I do? I remind myself the truths of God's scriptures. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God, and the peace of God will, God will guard your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Fear not, for I am with you. And I remind myself these truths. I start to exercise them in my soul until I remember why I believe it. And I tell myself, well, if God's sovereign, why am I letting my mind act like it is? I have to remind myself the word of God. You must do the same. The word becomes alive, and it's literally as if Jesus whispers into the deepest parts of our soul to comfort the weary. And it's that same deep relationship with God's word that every Christian is meant to have, not only for yourself, but when another person is weary, you're able to comfort them as well. So this is a distinctive of the servant. What's another distinctive? Not only does the servant speak the word of God, but he also obeys the word of God. Look at verse five. It says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from them from disgrace and spitting. The Messiah, unlike the rest of Israel, was always obedient to his father. As James chapter one says, he was not only a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. But beloved, don't overlook the irony of verse six. The servant suffers for being faithful to God while the rest of Israel suffered for their rebellion to God. How can we make sense of this? Why on earth would God allow his faithful servant to suffer when he's done everything right? How do we make sense of something like this? Have you jump over to Romans again? Look at Romans chapter 3, starting verse 21 in Romans chapter 3. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So how does Paul relate to what we're reading about in Isaiah 50? It comes back to that word covenant that I mentioned earlier. So think about this. In order for God to bless Israel, as he said, they had to hold to their end of the covenant like he held to his. So what happens? Jesus is the true Israel. He keeps the covenant requirements. Remember, God said, if you trust me, believe me, and don't make idols and don't do these things, I'll bless you. But if you don't do those things, you break my law, you'll be cursed. And not only the covenant with Israel, but go back to the garden of Adam and Eve. God makes a covenant with Adam and Eve. He says, you can be in the garden and enjoy the fruitfulness of the garden, eat from any tree you want. Just don't touch the knowledge of good and evil. And they break their covenant. And not only them, but you go to Noah, the covenant there. You go to the kings of Israel. You go to Abraham, Israel. All these covenants being broken by sinful man. How can God be just if he allows a relationship with these sinful people in their sinful condition? And here's the servant. The servant comes. He becomes a second Adam, as the scripture calls him. He's the faithful king, as the scripture calls him. He is the perfect, the true Israel, the seed of Abraham, Galatians chapter 3. So Jesus comes in, lives a perfect life, and he's obedient. So now he can rightfully receive the blessings of the covenant made with God. But not only that, why does he suffer? Because guess what? In order for God to remain just, he has to punish mankind. Jesus says, I'm not only going to be the righteousness required for the covenant, but I'm going to pay the curse of what they deserve. This is what happens on the cross. The cross is so much more about the, it's so much more than just about the Romans. Jesus is literally absorbing the wrath of God in your place so that you can receive the blessings of the covenant of God. In order for God to remain just, he has to punish sin. Jesus takes on that sin in and of himself on the cross. Therefore, this covenant relationship with God, he's able to bless his people because they have a representative and they have someone who's faithful to the covenant. Beloved, this is the gospel. Not only Israel is redeemed, but everyone who puts their faith in the servant reaped the blessings of God's covenant. Now, you want to guarantee that this is true, verses 7 through 9 affirm that. Because I'm sure there were some Jewish people to say, how can this be the Messiah if he suffers? Well, the scripture said he would suffer, but God will not allow his suffering to go in vain. God says, I'm going to show you that this is my servant. His suffering is not for his sin. It's because of your sin. And I will raise him from the dead so he will be vindicated and no one can accuse him of guilt. And this is why Christ resurrected with all power and authority in his hands. The righteous servant couldn't be held by death because of who he is and what he'd done for his father. This shows just how committed God is to keeping his word. Beloved, if this is the father's commitment to his son, then what do you think the son's commitment is to you? If this is the father's commitment to his son, what is the son's commitment of you? The New Testament says, what can separate you from the love of God in Christ? Shall death, persecution, even your own sin, God in his commitment will make sure that he will work with you by the power of the spirit to give you victory over everything you have, whether it's sin or whether it's a struggle, you will endure to the end because of his commitment to his son and his son's commitment to you. 
God's commitment is guaranteed because of his commitment to the servant, which brings us to our final point. We know God's commitment, but we must also know the call. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Isaiah 50 tells us the condition of humanity because of our sin. But he also shows God's commitment to redeem the world. And to wrap up this chapter, we're prompted to answer the call of God. So what's the call? Isaiah 50 tells us the condition, but he also gives the call. The call is simply to fear the Lord and obey his servant. So what's that mean? To obey the servant means to obey the gospel. That's the call. God calls the whole world, both Israel and Gentiles, every human being to submit to his king and fall in line with his kingdom. Now, I know some of you may be a bit confused why I said obey the gospel. Now, here's why some may be confused. Because many people hear the gospel and they're like, man, it's this passive thing that we just share with people. You know, just tell people about Jesus, but don't be too pushy. You don't want them to think you're a weirdo. It's kind of like that Facebook event invite. Everybody sends you, but no one responds to. Some of y'all on Outlook who never respond to invite calendars. That's not the gospel, though. That's not how Jesus calls us to share the gospel. Of course, at times, Jesus is very gentle in his gospel proclamation. But every time Jesus shares the gospel, it's always with a sense of urgency. Let me just give you some examples in the New Testament of how the gospel shared. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It says, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Luke 9, 23, and Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. John 6, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Acts 2.38, Peter stands in front of the people of Israel and says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is the call of the gospel. It's urgent because as Isaiah says in verse 10, mankind apart from Jesus is left walking in a dark world with no light. Apart from Jesus, we can't see anything as it ought to be. Everything is distorted because of our condition of sin. And this is why God calls humanity to trust in the name of the Lord and rely on him because when we do that, we're able to literally see the world in a completely different light. This is what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. When you put your faith in Jesus, nothing looks the same as it did before. Nothing. Try it. Think about it. Money. Hey, before you was a Christian, hey, I'm going to stack my money up. I'm going to stack it up so I can build my kingdom up. People see me and say, look what he got. Like, and you're just worried about stacking it. And you become a Christian, you're like, man, this money ain't mine. This is Jesus. I want to use it to love people. And I want his name to be great, not mine. Not only money, time. 
Your time changes. At first, before you knew Jesus, it was all about you and your personal time, your comfort. I don't feel like doing this, so I'm not going to do it. But then you become a Christian. You're like, man, I'm tired. I worked all day, but my brother or sister needs me. Let me go over here and make sure I love on them right now. Your time changes. Your parenting changes. Before, it was like, hey, my kids are going to be an extension of me. Everything I wanted to do or what I should have did, these kids are going to do it for me. Then you get saved. And you're like, man, these is God's children. If God got to break my kids, if they got to bump their head, if they got to be the prodigal son or prodigal daughter, whatever needs to happen so that they know him, I'll trust his process. The only thing that matters to your children is not their status, but it's about if they love Jesus, you're content with that. Family, the way you view your family is different. You used to go to the cookout and be like, man, uncle so-and-so's there and he gets on my nerves. My cousin, I'm always asking for something. But then it changes. You're like, man, this family that God's given me, God sovereignly placed me in this family for a reason. God didn't make a mistake. He put me here for a reason. I want to be a light to my family. I want to love my family. If my family's going to go to hell, I want them at least going to hell knowing that Jesus has a way out. And I want to be that for them and for them to see his grace. Not only family, but I'm going to step on the people that's dating's toes as well. You're a Christian. It changes the way you view dating. Before, you was like, as long as she's cute, that's all that matters. <laughs> Give me a 10 or 20, whatever. Or as he's a nice guy. He's a really nice guy. His status is really good too. Great 401k and great guy. But then it changes. You're like, I, I want somebody that loves Jesus. I want somebody that's hidden in him. Somebody that's given their whole life to Jesus. Therefore, I'm not going to compromise my faith, but I'm going to wait for the Lord, the person that he gives me. Everything changes. Yet the question still remains, this is for Christians, those who answer the call. What of those who reject the call of God? The text is communicating is the difference between one who relies on the Lord in verse 10 and those who rely on themselves in verse 11. This is why there's a comparison of lights. The one who fears the Lord trusts in God to be their light and salvation, yet the other person thinks they have a light in and of themselves. Listen to me. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't the fact that Christians are better. It's not. I promise you. I love y'all. And we all in this together, Christians be sometimes just as raggedy as non-believers. I'm not. I know sanctification will grow in holiness, but we're not better. What's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? A Christian knows that nothing in their hand can they bring. Simply to the cross they cling. Their reliance is wholly on God. But a non-Christian, I got this myself. I can do this. What, what I need God for. And if you're a non-believer and if somebody invites you to church, like we love you and we praise God that you're here. We hope you see a good representation of who Christ is. But beloved, I promise you'll never be good enough. You'll never be nice enough smart enough, rich enough. There's nothing in and of yourself that will gain your acceptance before a holy and righteous God. And if you reject him, the only thing left is the judgment that we all rightly deserve. Instead, why would you not trust in his servant, his Messiah? His son was righteous where we couldn't be righteous. And therefore, to Israel and all the nations, anyone who calls to him, he says, man, I died on this cross, took the punishment that you deserve so you could be forgiven. 
Therefore, come, rely, and listen, and trust me. This is how God sums up this call. He says this in Revelation 21. You can just listen. I'll read it for you. It's Revelation 21. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. If you're a human being, you know our condition. You know none of us is perfect. So if you know your condition yet you hear God's commitment, why would you reject his call? God's servant, Jesus, is mighty to save all who call on him. And not only is he mighty to save, but for the believer, he's mighty to sustain. Therefore, we rely on him daily. And this is what the text calls us to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know where every single person in this room stands. You know the burdens of our heart, you know the fears in our mind, and you know the desperate condition that we all have. I pray that you would take, by the power of your spirit, these hearts, comfort them, comfort the weary, but also draw those who don't know you to yourself. I pray that many will answer the call and they will come to you and trust in you and your servant for their salvation. And it's to this end we pray in Jesus' name, amen.